Good morning. As Jay mentioned, we're the text for the morning and the Bible study at 9 o'clock will coincide with one another. So it gives you an opportunity to um, not only deal with some fairly simple but interesting questions concerning the text and also to get to know other people. So you get to know other people. You get to know the text for the morning. It's, it's, a, it's a good deal. So that happens at 9 o'clock right before. Um, we are beginning a series in First Peter, and it's called Staying the Course. It's about perseverance. Wherever Christians are in a minority, it seems like the letter of First Peter takes on increased relevance. It's in the aftermath of World War II in Soviet-dominated Germany. It was a favorite text among university Christians in Muslim Indonesia, former Yugoslavia, 1 Peter is said to be the most popular book among Christians because it seems to relate so much to their experience. The original readers to whom Peter wrote, their identity as Christians was a source of both joy and sorrow. Uh, Because of their Christian faith, they were marginalized by society, they were somewhat alienated in their relationships. If they didn't experience it, they were threatened with a loss of honor, you know, socioeconomic standing. It wasn't going to help them, the fact that they were Christians. Uh, many Christians around the world have experienced a similar negative reaction to their faith by the societies in which they live. And just this morning and all around the globe, there are places where if you're going to meet as a Christian, you have to watch out. I remember being in China, again, in the early part of the 2000s. It's loosened up quite a bit since that time. Now there are actually church buildings, not big. At that time, there were only state-sanctioned churches. They called them three self-churches. And so those are the only churches that could exist And in a town with 12 million people, as Tianjin was, I think there were three or four or three self-churches. And now there are house churches, and the government does not crack down. But I remember when we conducted some meetings, and um, I was in a, um, another city outside of Tianjin. Um, and I remember we had a meeting, and so it was going to be at this particular time, 9 o'clock in the morning, and individuals had to come. There were about 60 or 70 that came, but they didn't come all at once. And some came at 7.30, and a few more came at 7.45, and they drifted into this apartment complex by different doors using different entrances because you didn't want to call attention to the fact that you were meeting. And that's the way it worked. Again, things are a little bit different, but there are places now where individuals who are experiencing some sense of pushback because of being Christians, they look toward this letter in First Peter and they provide and they get some encouragement and guidance from it. Uh, again, there are those of us who know, we can't identify in the same way uh, with being in that kind of situation. We have been fortunate and fortunate enough. There might be some pushback for being a Christian, but by and large, um, being a Christian in America does not directly jeopardize um, social standing. In general, it doesn't directly jeopardize livelihoods or 
life itself. For instance, we're going to do a baptism next week. And when we did a baptism in China, we had to do it in secret. If somebody had known, it would have been trouble. But we'll do a baptism. Nobody will be there taking names. It won't be turned into a law enforcement agency, as in China and as in the, in the early church. So then the question becomes, what significance could this ancient letter have for individuals like us who don't really live in the same kind of context that they lived in? But we'll find a number of things that we'll be able to identify with and find encouragement from. We're just going to take the first two verses. Look what it says. And just in your worship, all the first Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In order to appreciate what's occurring here, we've got to find out a couple of things about the people to whom Peter writes, and we learn two things. Uh, number one, we learn that they are foreigners, and secondly, we learn that they're chosen. They are foreigners, but they are also chosen. The first thing, they are foreigners. They're called elect exiles of the dispersion, and in the text, it's a capital D. It's not just speaking of a generalized dispersion. There is a specific name given to the experience Jews experienced prior to Christ's coming where they were systematically dispersed from their homeland into the Roman Empire. And uh, the first dispersion actually wasn't so much a dispersion as an invasion. Um, Israel went through two captivities in the centuries prior to Christ. In the 8th century, the northern part of the kingdom of Israel, it had split in two following Solomon's reign. Up until that time, it was united, but at that point, it split. And the northern kingdom, they entered into captivity first by the Assyrians. It was grotesque what happened. The Assyrians were brutal. And the way they dealt with people they conquered was they tried to eliminate their civilization. And what they would do is that they would beat them so severely that no one would dream of rising up against the empire. And also they imported people into the, the region of the conquered people so that they couldn't retain their identity. And that's why at the time of Jesus, the Samaritans were kind of half-breeds. They lived in the northern part of Israel, the result of the Assyrian captivity, where there were a number of people. It was a melting pot, and that's why Jews in the south looked up to Jews in the north with a sort of disdain. They are half-breeds, and, and that happened in the 8th century. But it wasn't it. There were some Jews who were forced out. The problem was many foreigners came in. However, the south had the southern kingdom. They had a reprieve of about maybe a couple hundred years. But what ended up happening, their time came as well. They went through the, the Assyrian were eventually replaced by the Babylonians. They were a little more civil. And so the Babylonians conquered Israel 
in the 6th century B.C. And what they did, they had a different philosophy. They allowed the people they conquered to have their own culture. And what they wanted, though, is to kind of import their, export their culture in. That's why they called for some of the leading people of Israel to come to Babylon. And you remember, if you read the stories, Daniel... In the lion's den, that's what happened during this time. Daniel was brought into Babylon, became an administrator. Daniel, Shadrach, and Abednego, they had that experience in the furnace in Babylon. And that's what happened. They took people and they brought them too. And what ended up happening, though, they moved people out of um, Israel. And that's the first real dispersion. Jews were forced to leave their homeland. Where did they end up? They ended up a number of them through the empire, but through in what at Peter's time was called Asia Minor. Today, it's a region what is known as the western part of Turkey. At that point, it was Asia Minor, a big area, small cities, few and far between. If you want to think of it, you might think of Deadwood, the wild, wild west. Again, people kind of rough and tumble. They spoke many, they practiced many religions, spoke a bunch of languages. They really were never fully assimilated into Greco-Roman culture. They lived in the West of the thing. All the, the civilization was in the East, and this was, it was a rough and tumble place. Um, and this is where a number of Jews ended up, in this place, living among people. And when you're in this kind of situation, for instance, when I was in China, they, call about, they talk about third culture people. Then you have the Chinese culture, and then you have American culture. But then if you're an American living in China, you're not Chinese, but neither are you really American. So they call third culture people, where you live in a home that's not really your home among your own people. One thing I understand about being in a place like that that you really do gravitate towards those who are kind of like you. I got to know a number of Chinese, love the experience of getting to know them, wonderful people. I didn't think that was going to be the thing that I would enjoy as much. I was going to go there to help the, in fact, we couldn't even say the word at the time. I'm missionaries. We call them M's. That's tricky. <laughs> so we, but that's, but I felt that's where the people that I was going to really find a sense of resonance with. But the, the Chinese were wonderful. But at any rate, I remember certain, like Thanksgiving, when you could kind of do the things that people of your culture were doing in a foreign land. And I remember how significant that was to have turkey and we gathered together. I got to know these people. We hung out together. We stayed in a compound. And, and it really is a different dynamic when you are a third culture person. That's what these Jews were like in Asia Minor. They weren't really part of Jewish culture in Israel. They weren't really part of Greek culture and Roman culture. They were kind of a people unto themselves, probably stayed to themselves. Um, there was a second kind of dispersion. Now, this was a Jewish one, but then there was a Jewish and Gentile Christian one that occurred. When Claudius was the emperor in like 50, 50 uh, BC, then what he would do, he had this plan to colonize the West. It's kind of like what our government did when we gave land 
to individuals who would settle in the West in order to bring culture into the West. That's what they determined to do as well. So they would take individuals and try to get them to move into the part of Asia Minor. And what they did, these individuals would introduce Roman language, culture, and politics. That's a good thing. That's one reason why Claudius wanted to do it. They provided a military presence so that you could have armies every once, you know, dispersed throughout the region. And there was the opportunity for commerce. Um, so what could, as far as we get to these, again, an idea of the people to whom Peter writes. Probably generations back, they were Jewish. A number of Jewish people. Peter was a Jew who understood Rome. He also, there were also some both Jewish and Gentile Christians who moved to this area. And that's probably how they came to be Christians, but their churches that ended up growing up here. And because of Peter's association with them, he writes to them to encourage them in their faith, to instruct them how to live as Christians in a place where they are kind of not fully accepted and not fully understood. They're facing troubling times. Again, because of their Christianity and their ethnicity, they are kind of ostracized. They're not fully accepted. They're not going to get great jobs. They don't have great contacts. Their kids are going to have some limitations in terms of how far up the ladder they're going to be able to go. Slander, malicious talk, undermine their relationships with associates and families. They threaten their honor in the community, um, jeopardize their livelihood. And Peter writes about how to maintain a vital Christian faith in circumstances like this, when unjust treatment presses in upon them. And there's places in our world where this is a daily occurrence for Christians, and that's why they look to this book. Peter writes to give them hope and consolation and encouragement. But they're not only foreigners. They're also chosen. It says in the text, Peter, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, it says they're chosen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And when it talks about the foreknowledge of God the Father, what it means, he knows in advance what's going to happen. It's, there's some individuals who believe and that when it talks about foreknowledge, that God foreknows individual people. God foreknows that you're going to be a Christian and you're not, and you're going to be in a Christian and you're not. In fact, somebody, some people teach that God predestines some people to heaven and predestines some people to hell. Which I'm, no, no, not the way it works. It's, when it talks about him foreknowing, I don't think it's as much talking individually as corporately. What God knew, because as we'll find out, this would end up becoming, this place in Asia Minor, the cradle of Christianity. This was the place where it really started to take root. A lot of the predominant Christian thinkers came from this area. Is that a mistake? Not a mistake at all. That's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God understood what he would do and why he would do it. Again, I don't understand everything, but the one thing we'll see as we step back, God really knows what he's doing. 
God is never at a loss. He's not reactive. He's not wondering. God is not biting his nails. He doesn't look at this, and he doesn't look at that. He's not looking at our government. He's not looking at ISIS, and he's not biting his fingernails. We don't know why he does what he does, but God is in control, and he is doing what he purposes at some level. And that's what he was doing here, moving people into this area through a Jewish dispersion. The captivity was terrible, but God was accomplishing something by sending Jews to this area, Jews and Gentile Christians moving to this area. And what he's doing, putting this together, and what's going to happen, this is going to bloom and become the epicenter of Christianity. Um, They're chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the consecration or the setting apart of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, even before creation, God determined that this would be something that would happen. We find two things in the Bible. We find judgment, and there's expressions of judgment, and there's expressions of mercy. Before Israel, when they were living in the wake, the southern kingdom was living in the wake of seeing the northern section go into captivity. They were biding their time and felt like they were pretty secure. Jeremiah writes, though, and lets them know that their time is coming before the Babylonian captivity ever occurred. And it's in your text. Through Jeremiah, God says to them, this is what's going to happen. And this is how long it's going to happen. Look what it says. This is written, again, prior, before it ever occurred. Uh, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from the from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. The Babylonian captivity was a dark time in Israel's history. And what ends up happening at a time like this, you look in your rearview mirror and you see bad things, and you determine that, well, okay, that's that's it, I guess. I guess my my chances are done. You know, if you look and bad things happen, you wonder, I wonder if God has wiped his hands of me. I wonder if he's done with me. It sounds like that was God's attitude towards um, these people. But with God, the thing that biblical writer after biblical writer will say, God never gets stuck with judgment. If you follow the track of God's activities, and we're going to understand it even from this text, God always lands at a place with his mercy. It never stops with judgment. There are difficult experiences, but if you keep on following the trail, you'll find that there will always be a clearing. And in the clearing, you will find something. I never expected that here. I never imagined that. And there are illustration after illustration. I remember a couple of ones I really like. It's um, It was when David was a king, and for some reason he numbers the fighting men. 
and he does so, and you're not supposed to do that. That shows that that's putting his confidence, and as the leader, in his military force rather than in the Lord. So anyways, it ends up becoming some trouble, and a plague breaks out. A plague breaks out, and David seeks the Lord and talks to him, and and so the, the plague ends at this place, and there was an angelic appearance and a warlike soldier there, and anyways, it ended up at the threshing floor of a guy named Ariuna the Jebusite. So he's at his threshing floor. This guy is where everything stopped. And then they got to a place where they were looking for a place to build the temple. Now, it wasn't David going to build the temple. It was Solomon, his son. But they were looking for a place where we're going to put the temple. This is going to be a structure that will, it'll be destroyed by Babylon, but it will be, and they'll be destroyed, but it will be, and guess where they put it? Perfect place? The threshing floor of Ariuna the Jebusite. The very place that there was judgment ended up becoming a place where God lived, where there's mercy. Another thing, I really like the story. You've heard it. It was David earlier than this time. David, he learned this about God. That's why he was a man after God's own heart, because David understood that God was always someone to whom he could turn. Even when lousy things happened, he never stopped seeking. And we find this when he had the sin with Bathsheba. And what ended up happening then, um, the result of um, the infidelity was that the child, Bathsheba, conceived out of their immorality, became sick. And David sought the Lord and fasted and prayed and the people, the advisors around, the kid's not getting well, the kid's getting worse. And then the kid dies. And they were afraid to tell David because they didn't know what he was going to do. Again, he went without food. And and so he sees them talking, perceives it. And he asks, is the child dead? They said, yeah. And then David gets up and washes, bathes himself. Then he goes in to worship the Lord. And then he, at some point around this, writes Psalm 51. Ends up going to see Bathsheba and comforts her. Ends up marrying her. They have a son. And the sons, the, the same prophet that told David, the first child is going to die. This prophet said, this is what God wants you to call this child, Jedidah. Jedidah means loved by the Lord. And we know that child as Solomon. He became a link in the chain that would bring Jesus Christ to the planet. Why? How does That seems to be what God does. If you look at the roots of what God does, you'll find all these things that God using people that he probably shouldn't use in ways that he shouldn't use them in peculiar ways. He, he takes things that don't seem to be holy things and use them for holy purposes. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see that here as well. Um, God tells the Israelites who were forced to leave their homeland that their Captivity was going to last 70 years. Um, it seems like God would leave and forsake them. However, 
We always find mercy on the far side of judgment. Now, this passage in Jeremiah 25 talked about what the lousy things were going to happen. If you flip four chapters, you're already going to find a silver lining. Look what it says in Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. I bet you've heard this verse. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's interesting to know who, to whom that verse was said and what they were going through at the time. It was a difficult time. They looked in their rearview mirror, and all they could see was destruction. They looked ahead, and it didn't look like there were any rainbows on the horizon. And God says, here, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. The reason why he says that, we can't always draw comfort from what we see. But we can draw comfort from what he says. I don't know what you see when you look in your rearview mirror. Things that you feel I might have been left or forsaken, it might look that way. And if you look to the future, it might not look like there's things that are associated with something that you can be excited about. But God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope, it was true for Israel, and it came true. And it's true for you. You'll always find mercy on the far side of what God does. It's just always where he lands. Well, isn't that what it says? Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I might go through the valley of the shadow of death. But David understood that he was going to land in that place. I think that's why we like Psalm 23 so much. It assures us that we're going to land in a good place. And we need to hear that because it's not always true from what we see. But every once in a while, we end up getting an experience of being able to see it. And in this passage, we'll see. Going on, it says in Jeremiah 29:12, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you to exile. Two chapters of announcing judgment, God announces mercy. I don't know if what you imagine God would say to you if he would show up, but it will not be about your past. God is not stuck on what you should have done and didn't do. God is preoccupied with what he promises and would have you become aware of that as well. He does have a plan. It is for welfare, not for calamity. It's give you a future and a hope. God is not stuck on the bad things that you've done. He just isn't. We get stuck on that. God is thinking of his purposes. He causes all things to work together for good, even a captivity. Um, Peter writes to the descendants of these dispersed Jews, um, their homelands are gone, they are living as foreigners, but God isn't finished with them yet. What Peter says, he talks about the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to Jesus Christ, sprinkling with his blood. 
What I think he has in mind, he has in mind a promise that was written in Ezekiel. So what happens? Jeremiah leaves the scene. And then once they are in captivity in Babylon, Daniel's there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are functioning. At that point, Ezekiel writes. And he provides a promise as well. This is the one I think Peter is thinking of, and he writes to these individuals who are those who ended up being pushed into Asia Minor. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When all is said and done, what God says, he's going to cleanse them. He's going to come and he's going to create responsiveness in them. When they look in the rearview mirror, they see judgment, but what ends up happening, these people to whom, to these people to whom Peter write, is he asks them to look around. What ended up happening to these people? These people that were moved into these places that would seem to have been the end of the road? These are the places where the churches are growing. And again, will be the cradle of Christianity. God hadn't been stuck and was not stuck on what did happen. He was preoccupied with what would happen. You know what it says? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. Uh, Devin, come on back up. We're going to closing song. You know what the deal was? They thought that they were scattered to this part of Asia Minor. Um, the truth is, they weren't scattered. They were planted. And four to five hundred years later, fruit was born that became the very cradle of the church. In God's economy, mercy always follows judgment. Dear Father, we're just thankful for what you've done and what you provided, and we um, look forward to this new um, sermon series and also look forward to the way it gets punctuated. I just ask that you would be with everybody as they leave today. I enjoy the sunshine and um, minister to their needs. We love what you've given us, and we love that you're committed to us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.